Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog on a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There is nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we feature one of Chicago's all-time best television sportscasters, Mark Greco. This interview was done in mid-October of 2020 and during the infancy stages of this podcast. It does not reflect Mark's current status as he departed WLS-TV Channel 7, as did Janet Davies. However, the rest of the podcast is as entertaining as it gets, and that shouldn't come as a surprise. Gian Greco has mixed biting humor with deft reporting into his sportscast, earning him myriad awards and plaudits from his peers. His stories are priceless as the man himself. So... Mark Gian Greco, tell me a story I don't know. George, my friend, um, I actually, way before I got involved in sports, was on the path to be an artist. Went to art school at a very young age, uh, worked in uh, pen and ink, pencil, watercolor, sculpture, everything else. And I was going to go down the path of art. <laughs> so what stopped you? Uh, being a kid. <laughs> Being a guy, uh, I know my mom uh, was wonderful at, you know, analyzing all five of her children and realizing each individual talent and then forcing us to develop that talent. So my grandmother was a commercial artist. My aunt was a commercial artist. The talent runs in my family. Uh, one of my sons is a spectacular graphic artist and super creative. So it was there. And my mother said, you're going to art school. So while all the other kids were, uh, you know, playing baseball or whatever. Uh, she made me go to art class with a bunch of old ladies, and I was the only boy. I was a 10-year-old kid, and I couldn't stand it. And I was always late for swimming, and I was always late for football because I had to go to art class. But, you know, in retrospect, obviously, it was the right thing. And, you know, I developed it over the years, and, you know, now that I'm an old burned out turd, <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll go back to it, you know? Well, you've painted a lot of very interesting pictures on TV. So let's go back to this past New Year's Eve and tell me the story behind dressing up in drag. Well, you know, we uh, pick a different location every year, Janet and I and our producers. And 
you know, it's always off the wall. Nobody goes out for New Year's Eve anymore, and that's why our ratings are through the roof. I know many of the other stations tried New Year's Eve shows over the year, but we just managed to crush them because the show is so absurd. And, and I'm convinced that while maybe 60, 70% of the people are laughing with us, the other 30 or 40 are laughing at us, but we don't care. So uh, this past uh, New Year's Eve, we decided we're going to go to a, uh, you know, a drag bar. Janet, Mark. this is awesome. Drag racing on New Year's Eve, great idea. You didn't read your email. What? It is a drag club, not drag racing. Drag club, see it over there? What? Yeah, so we're late. We got to go get into makeup and get your clothes on. So let's go. I don't get, what's the big deal? Go. I get makeup every night. Go, go, let's go. Mark, come on, showtime, hurry up. He is all ready. You're darn right I'm ready. Let's oh. do this thing, huh? <laughs> hey, listen, do you think I could still race the car? No. Really? <laughs> really? That's okay, because I tell you, I feel almost as pretty as Cheverini right now. Exciting. This place opened up on South Michigan, and... You know, it's a natural, of course I'm going to dress and drag. That's the payoff. That's, you know, that's the whole opening bit. We try to tape something um, right off the top and then go into the show and we have different themes every year. So I have to tell you, you know, you have to respect that art form. And, you know, you better not be mocking these people because they'll take your head off. It's, uh, it was a really interesting culture to jump into. Uh, the makeup took hours, the hair, the costume, everything else, for about a 30-second bit. But I have to say, uh, uh, these entertainers are true entertainers, really talented. We had a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we just let it rip. Obviously, there's no script. There's no format. Janet's been my TV wife, you know, forever. And we just play off each other. And actually, it's interesting how that whole thing started. Um, James Ward, if you remember him, he was the restaurant food critic. Yes. You know, chow chow for now. And, you know, a little quirky guy with a bad toupee. <laughs> he, was, he was Janet's uh, co-host when I came over to Channel 7 in 1994. Um, and about two years in, James was so drunk one New Year's Eve. They come out, hey, Happy New Year, you know, New Year's Eve, welcome, blah, 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 blah. And James was so drunk, he fell off the stool in the opening. Oh, you're moments. kidding. No, and he was down and out for the count. Janet did the show by herself. And so after that was over, she came to me and said, please, can you be my co-host? And I thought this was going to be, you know, stopgap measure for a year or so. And I think we're in our 22nd year now or something like that. It's 25th year. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Well, let, let me tell you something, Mark. After, after seeing that, Madonna has nothing on you. You were hot. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, thought, I thought I looked like the old Jewish woman, like, let's talk. You know? <laughs> the old Mike Myers character on Saturday Night Live. And actually, I thought I looked exactly like my sister. You know, she, she looks like me in drag for real. So. You know, it, it's funny. This is part and parcel of who you are professionally and personally. You know, I, I would say you're playing with a 52 card deck and all the jokers. So tell me a story when you knew you can parlay your personality and your profession and make it work. Well, you know, when I worked in Dayton, Ohio, and Louisville, Kentucky, I was obsessed with having the perfect show and being this journalist and being a straight reporter and having a very tight sports cast and everything else. But when I came to Chicago, 
I had some executives tell me, you know, we, we hired you for a reason. I mean, you're a true professional, but, you know, we see how you are off the air. You know, you can interject a little bit of personality. Don't be afraid to do that. And so I just opened the floodgates and said, okay, you asked for it. Here it goes. And back then, it truly was the wild, wild west. I tell everybody that the movie Anchorman was not a comedy. It was a documentary. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly how it was in the <laughs> early 80s through the late 90s. So we just let it rip. It, you know, it was a whole different time as well, George. You know that. You and I have been in the trenches together for 38 years. Back then, you could get away with just about anything. And a lot of TV stations <clears throat> have a personality of their own. At Channel 5, you know, you got away with murder. And it was always everybody in the building against management. I think I had five or six general managers and at least five news directors over 12 years. And it was chaos there. And, uh, but all the writers, producers, reporters, editors, we were all very tight. We played softball together. We went bowling together. We all went out socially and we couldn't stand management and we'd always team up against them. And when I went over to Channel 7, it was much more of an intramural competition. A lot of reporters and anchors competing against one another. So that was kind of a weird adjustment. And the station's presentation was much more conservative. But again, we're talking about the culture of the 80s and 90s when you could say and do things that were so bizarre and get away with them. Let me give you an example. Uh, even now, when you sign off, you always include some wacky videos, but there's, right. there's plenty more. Tell me a story I don't know about perhaps the wackiest, and I mean the wackiest person you've encountered professionally, and that would be an ex-bear from the 1985 Super Bowl team whose name is Mongo Steve McMichael. We couldn't think of a better authority on the subject than Steve Mongo McMichael, who hit the streets to find out what you think. Does this bear defense have the same balls, the same coulons as that 85 team defense did? Well, that's exactly where I was going. You know, uh, the, the primary battleground for sports back then were those Bears Sunday night shows. Channel 7 had Walter Payton and Jim McMahon. Uh, Channel 2 had Mike Ditka. And we at Channel 5 had Steve Mongo McMichael, who was the scariest, craziest guy I've ever met. But a lot of people don't realize he's also one of the smartest, really introspective guys I've ever met. And, you know, part of that was an act, just like a pro wrestler. And, you know, after his career, he went into pro wrestling briefly. But those Sunday night shows were so outrageous. And, you know, I'll tell these stories now and, and people will, will just cringe. But back then, uh, he would bring props. He would think this thing out. After every Bear game, he'd go out and just get absolutely hammered. And he'd stumble down to the studio with his entourage, his wife, his mother-in-law, who had a filthier mouth than he did, you know, smoking butts and had a beer in her hand in the studio. And they'd bring all their friends. <laughs> and, you know, Mongo would call his wife's friends her Kotex Mafia. <laughs> I remember that. And... They would sit there as a studio audience, yeah. and Mongo, like I said, had props. Now, one night, he brought in a giant, you know, uh, hypodermic needle, this prop mm -hmm. from some weird game show, you know, with the collapsible needle. And he said, you know, I've been hanging out with you pretty closely. I'm going to have to give you an AIDS test. <laughs> and he stuck it in my neck, and it looked like he put the needle right through my neck. Yeah. And ha, 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 oh, that was outrageous. That was crazy. Well... 
turns out the lead story on our newscast before Sports Sunday, a woman died of AIDS contracting it from her dentist. Okay, so that was it. So they fired him. And the general manager, if we back up a few years, came to me and said, hey, listen, why don't we hire Steve McMichael? He seems pretty crazy. And you can just control him. Well, I wasn't about to control him. I cut him loose. You know, I said, if you want the gorilla in the room, here you go. Mm -hmm. So we did all kinds of bits. He'd bring his little dog, Peppy, on the set with a spiked collar. He would bring other players on the set. Did he hit you with a pie or something once? He'd hit me in the face with a pie. He'd cut off my tie. <laughs> he got me in a headlock and almost rendered me unconscious. He smacked my head on the set. We, we do all kinds of bits. Uh, I remember when the, the airplane phone was a big technological advance, and they'd be playing a West Coast game against the Raiders or whatever, and he'd do the show on the phone from the chartered plane. And we did a cartoon. I drew a cartoon of him with his head sticking out of the plane, and he said, you better not be showing a picture of me with my head sticking out of the plane. <laughs> I'm like, no, man, I would never do that. And we'd go on and on with that. But uh, he'd bring in other players who would beat me up. He would, uh, you know, light things on fire. So the night they fired him for that comment, he went in the lobby of Channel 5. And it was a brand new NBC tower with this beautiful lobby and these huge murals of all these famous NBC broadcasters. He tore down every picture and smashed everything in the lobby. He had a can of spray paint that he used to bring all the time. Gosh. And they had this beautiful, you know, etched logo of the peacock in a huge glass entranceway. He sprayed genitals on the peacock and then smashed <laughs> the window. So, and there were pictures of Jenny Jones and Jerry Springer uh, on the wall, tearing those down, oh gosh. along with John Chancellor and everybody else. So those were the wild days. But also, I remember taking my kids to Hallis Hall. And he came up to me and said, are these your kids? I said, yeah. And he said, I didn't even know you were married. He takes my boys, who were probably eight and six at the time, and my youngest one was way too small to make the trip. Um, he takes them in the locker room, gives them footballs, autographed jerseys, uh, sweatbands, headbands. And here's Richard Dent and a bunch of other guys smoking cigars, playing cards naked. But uh, <laughs> he, he was such a kind, introspective guy. We became great friends. Uh, he was one of the smartest guys I ever knew. We'd be up in Platteville at training camp. And uh, I'd be talking <laughs> to his wife who would show up. I mean, Deborah McMichael would show up you know, in a bikini sometimes in spandex. And she'd ride her bike up to me to my live shot location on top of the hill. And during calisthenics, he would turn and say, I see you with my wife. I'm going <laughs> to kick your ass. So it would just go on and on oh, and on gosh. like that. It was must-see television because people would first flip over to us to see what Mongo was going to do to me, then flip over to Channel 2. That means somebody has to go off the roster. Have you made it? Somebody will. No, I haven't, but I'll, but I'll make it by midweek. I'll let you know. Oh. I'll let you know firsthand. Let me know on the Dicka show, huh? Well, I hope so, because I'll try to get you before ABC, NBC. <laughs> okay. His hair curled in the front, and it looked like two water buffalo horns. <laughs> and his face was beet red. And, one, and I made fun of Mike on every single show. And my whole, the whole thing with me was, the guy's a football coach. He's not the Pope. He's not the president. He's not a king. I mean, I couldn't believe how people worshipped him. And he even admitted it later on that he got so caught up in his 
fame that he was out of control. But I remember one night we actually put a TV monitor on the set at NBC to watch CBS, which was back then no one would ever think about doing that. And Mongo and I would make fun of Ditka <laughs> and poor Johnny Morris would try to bring Ditka back on track. And he goes, hey, you know, oh, hey, welcome to uh, whatever. And hey, tough loss, Mike. And he goes, before we start talking about the game, that Mark Gian Greco, I'm never going to talk to him again. I'm going to kick his ass. <laughs> and, and Johnny's like, okay, 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 enough. You know, you don't want to say the competitor's name on your air. And those are the kind of things that we did. It was renegade Wild West TV. You know, there's more because you've done so many parodies, such as Mark, do your job. So tell me a story, one story behind one of those, which was make Mark be your teacher because it was hilarious. Well, thanks, man. We did 16 of those, make Mark do your job, and we re-ran them. And we've got such reaction. We put them on our website as well. And you can probably pull them up. Uh, so one of our very first ones, I was a kindergarten teacher in Wilmette. And <laughs> we'd, we'd walk in there. And I'm, I'm telling you, it truly, even though we staged a lot of the stuff and it, it was a lot of fun, I had a new appreciation for teachers because that will wear you out. <laughs> All right, kids, we're going to play a little basketball here. Take a shot. Go ahead. Go ahead. Get that stuff out of here. Okay, let's go get some juice. One, two, three, four. Lift, lift, lift. Guys like it on the rocks or straight? Let's see what they got here. Read them and weep. Five races. Too bad. We did bits where we're sitting around playing cards, smoking cigars, and, you know, they're, they're painting my face. You know, we're... We're doing all kinds of great bits. And uh, all those kids are now in their late 20s and early 30s. And they connected with me and got in touch with me. I sent out uh, a bunch of copies to them. And they are showing them to their kids now, which was crazy. We, I was garbage man. I was a stand-up comic in Vegas. I um, was a blackjack dealer. I was an exterminator, short order cook, shoe salesman. Um, we did all kinds of crazy stuff. We went to Vegas. I was a race car driver at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Was a blackjack dealer. Did stand-up comedy. Mike North happened to be in Vegas. We put him in the crowd and had him heckle me while I was doing my routine. <laughs> I'll bet um, you he heckled you, too. Oh, he did. And one of the best bits was they had a Star Trek exhibit at one of the casinos. And they dressed me as a Klingon warrior with all the makeup, all the prosthesis, everything, uniform. And here I am in full Klingon garb and makeup. And this couple walks in, and you know, older couple, tourist. And they walk by the exhibit and they go, hey, Marching Greco. Like, you tell that to me? And the guy goes, well, I think it was your nose. So one after another, those were so much fun to do. My producer, Larry Snyder, really creative guy. Uh, we came up with a lot of, lot of bits. And uh, every one of them actually worked out. They would run like four or five minutes. And we ran those as sweeps pieces in the newscast, outside the sportscast. And run them up in like the first block of the newscast. And uh, we, we got so much reaction that, uh, that we cut them all down and ran them again. 
Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballpark, socks and cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Mark Greco on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. We were talking about television in the 80s and 90s, and ratings for TV news have been on the decline mark for quite some time. But when you arrived, and pretty much through the 90s, it was quite healthy, and so was the competition to break stories, you know, between yourself, the affable Johnny Morris, the late Tim Weigel, and the tempestuous Tom Scher, who you worked with. So tell me a story I don't know about one of those events or stories you covered that really became a tug of war with your competitors. I remember we were in the Cubs locker room. You may have been there. Um, and we were interviewed Dick Ruthven, I believe, or somebody. And um, it was always cameramen and reporters pushing and shoving one another to get to a guy's locker to get their microphone and their camera in there. And you, as you well know, because you were right in there with me, a lot of pushing and shoving going on in that little tiny Cubs clubhouse in the back which is now where the groundskeepers keep all their equipment at Wrigley and uh, Les Grobstein was there and a little pushing and shoving and my cameraman at the time was Tori Mazzucano one of the scariest dudes you'll ever meet and uh, you want to be with him in one of those situations and so Les was trying to get his microphone in and Tori was pushing, while he was shooting the interview that I was doing, he was pushing Les and other reporters out, holding them off with one hand. And Les turned to me and he goes, hey, Mark, call off your dog. Tori put his camera down and goes, I'll claw your eyes out right now. Let's go. <laughs> Ruthman is in his locker, just looking, going, what the heck is going on here? We would have fights in a lot. Jim Rose, who is my colleague now and has been for you know, 26 years at Channel 7, we were competitors when I was with NBC. We got into the, uh, almost a fist fight in the locker room uh, after a Bears game. And uh, because we each had live shots to do, we were each trying to do our interviews and get them turned around and fed to the station and so forth. 
and uh, pushing and shoving. And I said, hey, man, come on. Can, can you hurry up? And we start going back and forth. Richard Dent goes, I got 100 bucks on JR. And Mongo says, I'll take the little Italian guy. <laughs> and Jim and I looked at each other. We went outside in the hallway, talked it out, shook hands, and everything was fine because we realized all the players were watching us and making fun of us. And they said, oh, we're going to see this fight between these two stiffs. This ought to be good. So that, that was that kind of stuff all the time during the Cubs playoffs in, in the mid and late 80s. Uh, no one was allowed on the field. Of course, Johnny Morris broke every rule in the book, and he jumped over the uh, the brick wall and started interviewing a player. And so I went to security, and I said, went to Major League Baseball and, and everybody else. I said, hey, we're not allowed to be on the field doing pregame interviews. Why is he getting away with it? So they kick him off, and Johnny comes over and goes, all right, who squealed on me? And I said, I did. And, of course, I had people in front of me holding me back because Johnny would have kicked my butt. But... <laughs> We basically came to blows on several occasions. I remember we would unplug each other's live shot cord. Really? Oh, yeah. You had your cables right. running into that moat box, you know, next to the dump. Yes. And, uh-oh, well, hey, excuse me. Sorry. Boom, kick oh. out a cable. We would sabotage one another. Like I said, the movie Anchorman was a documentary. Short of, you know, street fights with medieval weapons. It was that competitive. It really was. And I missed that. It was really fun. Now, unfortunately, with the demise of local TV news, I mean, you know, it's down to pool cameras for news conferences. It's all Zoom interviews now. They'll be laying off camera people. We may never be back in a locker room again. Uh, yeah, pro teams and schools, they have their own media departments. They do their own interviews. They pump out their own propaganda, their own video. Every station gets the same content, which is very, very scary, especially if you're trying to cover news. And obviously, a team is not going to elaborate on any controversy. So uh, all the news is sanitized and all the content is controlled, and it's very scary. So as we go through these cutbacks and layoffs, we're actually the last station to be affected by this. I think there'll only be one or two news outlets left in this market. I think it'll be us and WGN uh, and others will fall by the wayside. It's unfortunate, it's depressing, it's frustrating for someone like me who was lucky to, you know, to play in the golden age. It's really sad, but you know, social media, you can't compete with it. Our audience is basically uh, older demographics who don't have access to cable or other um, social media platforms, streaming services, and so forth. So we're still number one in every show. We're still the big dog, but everything is relative. We're not that big anymore. Um, so, so none of that, none of that kind of stuff is going to happen again. I mean, we're so detached. It's unreal. And uh, if I do have one regret, it's that I didn't really focus on enjoying the ride as much as I should have, because I was so intent on beating the competition not getting beat, making sure you got that video in, write something clever, try to put together a good show. You got one live shot after another. It was just all about the work. You know, there is one story uh, that you managed to, I don't know, how shall I put this, steal from a top Chicago news reporter during the NBA Finals. Tell us a story none of us know. One of my favorites, uh, Lakers Bulls championship out in L.A., the first one. Uh, and Arsenio Hall was huge back then. His show was really big on CBS, and Scottie Pippen was going to be Arsenio's guest. So one day at practice, I went to uh, 
Scotty and I said, hey, um, can we ride with you to Arsenio Studios? And he said, sure. We got a limo. Me, my cameraman, uh, Larry Collins, and my producer, Bob Vorwald. And we're riding to Arsenio, and I'm interviewing Scotty as we go. We open the sunroof. We're standing out of the sunroof singing uh, I Love L.A. by Randy Newman, shooting the whole thing, having a great, great time. And since it was a CBS show, uh, Channel 2, you know, sent a whole group of people out there, including news reporter Jay Levine, who prided himself on breaking stories and everything else. And he's standing at the back of the studio at Paramount uh, at the, uh, the secret entrance in the back. And he's all ready to get the exclusive. He's standing there with his cameraman, ready for the limo to pull up. And Scotty's going to jump out. And he's going to get the exclusive 101. They pull up. They start rolling. I walk out of the car. Hey, Jay, what's up, man? Just sticking it to him. He, you should have seen his face, just freaking out. Those were the moments we cherished. But wait, there's more. So we sit there and watch the show. And, of course, remember, they tape those at like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Then they run them late at night. And they would make a copy for Channel 2 and leave it at the front desk. My producer, Bob, who was the smartest guy in the world, he goes to the front desk and says, hi, I'm from uh, CBS in Chicago. Do you have a copy of the uh, show for me? Oh, here it is. <laughs> they give it to us. And, of course, I'm at Channel 5 at the time. We run it. We scoop them. They show up at the front desk. Uh, where's the tape? Oh, we gave it to your guy already. That wasn't our guy. <laughs> so those kind of things. And we would just go back and forth at each other like that and those are the moments you cherish where there's there's no greater feeling than to kick the competition's ass i mentioned to you at the outset that you have been suspended several times for things you said you are creative but you're irreverent and it's gotten you into hot water you've always liked to push the envelope but tell me a story when you pushed the envelope too far even for you okay well let me give you some background growing up my dad was a workaholic, very charming workaholic. And my mom defied authority at every turn. My mom was a national AAU swimming champion. Uh, she was a three-sport athlete in college. She had her own radio show and was a uh, host of a political talk show. She never told us any of this until we were adults. Um, she was an incredible woman, but in your face and defiant. And I think that's where I got it. You know, I played sports all my life and thought I was a fairly decent athlete, and I was a really good student, but teachers and coaches would always tell me, you're a major disciplinary problem. So I just carried that over to my career. And, you know, you know as well as I do, television and radio, you have to be yourself. You can't be some kind of phony on the air and then somebody else off the air. And so I just went with it. And so as I, you know, got to be more comfortable in the big market and, you know, learned my way around. Uh, I started getting very cocky and there were so many instances. Again, the NBA finals, I'm working for NBC. The finals are on NBC and I'm standing on the court at old Chicago stadium during the Lakers bulls finals. And Dick Versace is my co-host. And I suggested sarcastically half kidding, you know, um, Hugh Hollins is one of those referees who always makes the calls against the Bulls. You know, you remember him? Oh, sure. And, and it was always Hugh Hollins who would cost the Bulls a game or two here and there. Hubert Davis from straight away, and he is fouled! 
And I said, hey, how about this? Hugh Hollins is going to uh, ref game five, maybe game six. I think maybe NBC and the NBA got together saying, hey, let's try to force a game seven and make more money, put Hugh Hollins in there and, you know, give the Lakers another win. Oh, my God. Dick Versace looked at me like, and this this was live, and his hair turban almost came unraveled. <laughs> and he said, well, Mark, I don't think that's right, blah, blah, blah. Well, Commissioner David Stern called the station. Uh, Don Olmeyer called the station. Everybody at NBC Network. I had to issue an apology to everyone. They were going to fire me. I mean, that was one of the first. Uh, then there was... The one I really enjoyed was, um, well, let's see. There were so many. Oh, my God. <laughs> You've been suspended a few times. Come on. Well, yeah, I think uh, five or six over the oh two gosh. stations over 38 years. It's just that, well, my latest one, of course, were anti-Trump uh, tweets and so forth and Facebook posts that cost me two-week suspension without pay. The other ones had to do with, jeez, uh, what was the... Uh, what was the one? Oh, well, this wasn't a suspension, but remember Cap Boso, the tight end for the Bears? Yes. He caught a touchdown pass uh, an Asagi end zone one game. It came up with a big chunk of turf stuck. I remember face. that. And I said, I turned it into a, one of those commercials, and I said, uh, you know, I called it a Chia helmet. And I said, you can get your own <laughs> Chia helmet. Just call 1-800-CHIA-HELMET. Well, that phone number turned out to be, and hundreds of people called it I mean, oh, just as a joke or actually thought it was a real bit. And it turned out to be the Chicago Public School Homework Hotline. So we jammed all the switchboards there, and I wound up having to pay about a $400 bill to the Chicago Board of Education. Um, and what I really cherish to this day, this is why I will always go to a Portillo's drive through no matter what. Uh, Dick Portillo called the station and wrote them a letter and said, if you don't put him back on the air, I'm pulling my advertising. So they shortened the suspension a little bit and I got back on the air. But the NBA finals thing, the Detroit thing, those were probably the two biggest. Uh, there were several other. I have to believe that the time that you made fun of Walter Payton's weight loss, not knowing he mm -hmm. had cancer, n none of us did had to be a defining moment for you. Tell me a story I don't know from that time in your life. It was so disturbing, George, and I'm glad you brought it up because that's where I was going next. It was one of the most shocking, depressing, horrifying moments in my life. You remember when Jared Payton held his news conference uh, announcing he was going to go to the University of Miami to play football, and there was Walter, just emaciated. He had lost so much weight. Brad Palmer was on the story live. And I was in the studio and I said, I called Brad and I said, geez, Brad, you know, Walter doesn't look good. Can you ask him, you know, what's going on? He told Brad that he had overtrained for the marathon that he was going to run the marathon. And he just lost too much weight by training too hard. So, okay, I got it. He's not sick. And I said, on the air, look at Walter here. Wow. He looks like Gandhi. I'll bet I can take him now. Um, and then, of course, it comes out that Walter has this horrifying cancer. And I was just destroyed by it. I, I was ripped so badly. People hated me for that. Uh, to this day, you know, if I do something controversial or say something, 
uh, there are people out there that still go to that. I tried to call Walter 10 or 15 times, uh, nothing. One night I'm sitting at my desk at work and the phone rings and this little voice goes, well, you're a hard guy to get a hold of. And I'm like, oh, Walter, unbelievable. He, he knew he was dying at that moment and he went out of his way to call me. Now, you remember his news conference, he said, you know, bless those who, you know, are not sympathetic to me and are making fun of me. So at the time, he was very upset with me. But then later realized that I had no idea that he misled me and he misled everyone because he didn't want it to be made public at the time. So he says to me, look, at, I forgive you. You had no idea. I misled you. I lied. And I don't blame you at all. He knew he was dying at that point, And he went out of his way to call me and say it was okay. I absolve you. Don't worry about it. Now, that haunts me to this day. And I'll never, ever, ever forget it. When you're, when you're, you're, you're a wise guy like me, those things are going to happen. And you're going to hurt a lot of people. And hopefully I've learned along the way. But that was a defining moment in my career, albeit something I wish I could erase. And... Um, you know, Connie to this day, uh, Walter's widow and ex-wife is so classy and so kind. And we have talked about it. And, you know, Jared and I have talked about it on occasion. Um, it, it still bothers me to this day. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meat since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way, and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. You're a native of Buffalo where rumor is it snows in the suburb, but you bolted home for the University of Dayton where your athletic endeavors included football and it ended quickly. So tell me a story I don't know about that experience. Okay, well, you know, like a lot of us played sports growing up, played Little League to the majors in grammar school. In high school, I swam because my mother made me swim <laughs> since she was such a great athlete. That lasted freshman year. I couldn't stand getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and going downtown and be in the pool for an hour before starting class. You know, I was on the basketball team, on the football team, and once again, our starting quarterback at my high school reunion about 10 years ago went off on me saying you were a major disciplinary problem you probably could have been decent you know he wouldn't let it go um and so that was my history so we get to Dayton and about 45 of us decide we're going to try to walk onto the football team uh, back then Dayton was D1 we played the likes of Louisville Pitt 
you know, uh, SMU. We were the doormat. We beat Butler and Illinois State every year. Those were our only two wins. So I figure, you know, just on a whim, we'll try out. So there are about 45 of us, and the tryout lasts less than an hour. We do agility drills and sprints, and that's it. And the assistant coach who was in charge said, all right, guys, thanks. That's it. Nobody makes the team. And so I went up to him and I said, coach, we didn't scrimmage, nothing. He goes, look, it's an NCAA rule. We never take walk-ons. And, you know, I don't need 5'11", 185-pound slow white guys. <laughs> that coach <laughs> turned out to be Dennis Green. How about that? And uh, that was his first coaching job. He was a running back at Iowa. Then he was a grad assistant at Iowa. And he came to Dayton under Ron Marcinak, um as a first-year coach. And so fast forward to 1982 and then 1983, I'm at Channel 5, and we had the Northwestern Coaches Show. And Chet Kopik was like, I'm not doing that show. They're in the midst of like a 27-game losing streak. Let the new kid do it. So I'm hosting the Dennis Green Show. When they hired him, <laughs> he shows up. I tell him the story. I said, Coach, you know, you cut me way back in 1971 at the University of Dayton. And obviously he didn't remember the story. He goes, well, you know, I'm paying for that wisecrack because at Northwestern, all I have are 5'11", 185 <laughs> white guys. We became friends. I mean, doing that show was so easy, but it was so difficult. They would lose. They'd lose big. Dennis would be so upset. He would walk around the merchandise mart in the middle of winter just to cool down. Then he would come in. We'd sit down. So you take the commercials out. It's basically a 22-minute show. So my job was basically, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Green Show, show, Dennis Tough Loss. And he would talk for 22 minutes. And then I'd say, all right, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Because you know Dennis Green could talk. We became good friends. He lived in Evanston where I lived. Um, he was a great musician. He played the drums. When he was head coach of the Vikings, he had his coach's show. When they'd win, he had his live band there. He would play the drums. And he was a really interesting guy. And... He was a very good coach, but he was even a, a better communicator. I mean, he could talk forever. So that was a wonderful memory with him. And I'm so glad that I had that connection, you know, with him as a, a cocky college student and then as a broadcaster to be able to co-host the show with him. Now, it's my turn to tell you a story about me and Mark Greco. I remember one of the first stories you covered when you arrived from Louisville. It was at one of the O'Hare Airport hotels, probably... My guess is it was a baseball owner's meeting. It was winter. You were wearing a white trench coat. And as the years piled on, and I got to know what a wild and crazy guy you are, I kept wondering, is this guy wearing anything underneath? So tell me the story I don't know, or maybe that I don't want to know. Well, what's wrong with flashing a few uh, passengers <laughs> yeah. at the airport? I mean, you know, it's better than being accosted by a Hare Krishna or something oh, like gosh. that. But we used to do all kinds of, like, I would never wear pants, you know, on the set. We did the whole sports shorts thing. In the summertime, I would wear shorts and sandals to work and just have a sport coat and a shirt and tie. And I, my legs were sticking out every night. <laughs> and we would do a thing called sports shorts where I did all the bloopers. And people would start sending shorts in. And uh, to promote their charities or their businesses or whatever. And I would, at the end of the show, I would stand up and show off the shorts every time 
to promote the charity and it became a, a big deal. But you know, you had to make sure you're wearing underwear and stuff. Good idea, Mark. You are a hockey nut. You have three boys who also played the sport. Tell me why hockey was and remains so prevalent in your life. I'll tell you, um, it was a bonding thing with my kids. You know, everybody thinks this is such a glamorous job, but if you're working at night for 40 years, you miss putting the kids to bed, you miss homework, you miss dinner, you miss everything at home. And I really have to credit my ex-wife for being so organized and so disciplined and teaching my kids how to time manage. She came from a very academic family. That was a priority. And I'll, and I'll always appreciate you know, what she did for them as their mom. I was not there. I was never there. I missed Christmases, Thanksgivings, you know, because of the Bulls making playoff runs or the Bears or, or whatever. Um, major events, you had to be there. And so I missed so much. And those hockey trips that we made, that was my opportunity to bond. I was lucky that all three of my kids played at a very high level. We traveled all over the United States and in Canada. My one son even played in a tournament in Sweden. It was so great. But I came to realize that there's this thing about hockey and hockey players. I think it's the most difficult sport to play. I think, uh, you know, the dedication, the fortitude is above and beyond, with all due respect to basketball and football and baseball, the demands are incredible. And I don't know how my kids did it, keeping their grades up. So you really have to know how to manage your time. But we would take these road trips and I just cherished it. I loved it so much. My kids played for Nutrier and they played AAA. Um, I just look at hockey as a special sport where it takes uh, – a really special kind of person and toughness beyond any other sport. That's why I respect it so much. And because it allowed me to connect with my kids. My middle son was the only unanimously elected captain uh, at Nutria, which I cherish. My, my youngest, I remember he had long curly hair out the back of his helmet and the opposition would always make fun of him. And he would proceed to drill these guys into the stands during the game. Things you're proud of as a dad, you know what I mean? And they all, uh, my youngest son, Matt, was the MVP of a tournament in Wilmette. And Eddie Olchek was the host of the tournament and presented him with the trophy. And we're all great friends of, of Edzo, and I cherish his friendship. And here he is handing my son a trophy. I mean, these are the moments that make hockey for me one of the greatest things in my life. Finally, I ask this concluding question to all my guests. If it wasn't for TV journalism, Mark, what would you have been? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm obsessed with cars and, uh, you know, hot rods and custom cars and, and everything else. I think I just would have been a gearhead or going back to art school. I, I may have been a commercial artist and I tried to meld those as a kid. I would draw my own custom cars and come up with my own names and I would send them to the big three and I would get letters back from Chrysler, Ford and General Motors with the letterhead saying, thank you for your interest in, you know, Ford Motor Company. And if we ever use any of your design cues, we'll be sure to compensate you for them and blah, blah, blah. I would frame those and put them up in my room. So 
I think that I would actually uh, have been a commercial artist or involved uh, with hot rod cars somehow. And I think that's where I would have gone. But I think all of us who aspired to be and then eventually became sportscasters were frustrated athletes. So I think a lot of us would say, I wish I would have played a pro sport or whatever. So I vacillate between those. Thank you, Martin Greco, for telling me a story I don't know. Well, George, I tell you, you and I have known each other for 38, 39 years, and we've shared a lot of stories, and I, and I really, really appreciate that and your friendship as well. My thanks to ABC7 in Chicago for those memorable highlights. Thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing, T.T. Shinkin for her artistic touch, and Ken Schreiner for always being there. And, of course, to our presenting sponsors, the Polina Market. Find them at polinamarket.com and the Vienna Beef Company in business since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. Join me next time for another edition of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.